Good evening. Thank you for coming out. Uh, we continue our series, Defending the Faith, Part 2, uh, dealing with the difficult questions we can face. Uh, tonight, we're looking at the issue, how do we know the Bible is true? Uh, lots of different categories we could go through, lots of categories that involve a lot of detail that if we went through it all, we wouldn't be able to absorb it by the time we were done anyway. So I, I want to give some categories uh, and try to give us enough background to get a sense um, for our confidence despite accusations people make concerning the veracity of Scripture. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you've given us your word, that we can depend upon it, uh, that we don't have to rest on what people tell us. We have your word given. It has proven itself to our hearts and in our lives. And we ask that you would encourage us uh, with a greater sense of the defense of your word, of how to respond to people and their questions. Help us not to be intimidated by it, uh, but to be encouraged. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first category I want to look at is debunking the supposed mic drop case against the Bible. Uh, meaning uh, that there are people who consider that there are so many reasons why the Bible shouldn't be trusted that it's a slam dunk case. And any thinking person, obviously, would recognize the Bible cannot be trusted based upon their long list of reasons. Uh, the most common accusations given are uh, the Bible is at odds with science, that the Bible is filled with contradictions. That may be the most commonly one given. Uh, that the Bible has been translated so many times we cannot know what it said originally. I was reading a book review today, uh, and one of the uh, comments that someone was making about the book, that the Bible has been co is copies after copies after copies, so no one has any idea what it originally said. Uh, and people hear it and think, oh, I didn't know that. Or that the Bible is a violent book and it shouldn't be trusted. And that God sponsors much of the violence in it. Uh, another is that the Bible was written by primitive people and is no longer relevant. And finally, that the Bible is mythology. It was meant to be mythology. That contains spiritual truths that are helpful, but it was never meant to be taken literally. But is this a slam dunk, mic drop, depending on which generation you're in, case against scripture? The truth is most people have never studied even the issues and the reasons they give. Uh, they're statements that are given with confidence and people hear it and repeat it and it's just repeated over and over and that way they feel free to ignore scripture uh, but each point that i made has answers and the answers are involved they're detailed because the answers actually are very full there's a lot to it and it goes beyond uh, the scope of tonight. We could spend easily a night on just each of those questions brought up. Uh, there's excellent books that cover in detail, uh, and our bookstore carries several of them. So I'm going to take a, a few minutes to show uh, 
that there are good answers, reasonable answers, for each of the accusations made uh, against Scripture. So we'll go back to those accusations. That the Bible is at odds with science. The problem with the accusation is the Bible never presents itself as a scientific defense. The Bible is dealing with theological issues. So it's not even trying to present itself in a way uh, that deals with scientific questions, uh, particularly when you take the account of creation, which people speak against what Scripture says based upon scientific method, but the Bible in giving the creation story is not trying to deal with scientific method. It's speaking to us about the person of God and what we should understand about God and ourselves in terms of science. Uh, beyond that, there are many scientific realities, uh, realities that we accept uh, that really can't be proved by science, not in the way that um, they're claiming the Bible should be able to do. Uh, you can't measure love scientifically, yet it's a rather essential theme of Scripture and the reality of it. You cannot prove the soul exists scientifically, which again is at the heart of what Scripture is trying to point out concerning our souls and the condition of our souls. Uh, there is a lot within what Scripture is communicating that, that simply doesn't even fit in scientific categories. And even truths that can be proven scientifically, as we've already been talking uh, week after week, if you're biased, is that you don't believe it's true, it really doesn't matter what proof is there. Uh, there are people that don't believe the earth is round. There are people who don't believe that we ever landed on the moon. I mean, lots of people. There are people who don't believe the Holocaust happened. There are people who don't believe that Elvis is dead. There are even, and I had never heard this before, there are people, this is a thing, that the country of Finland doesn't exist. <laughs> that it's actually a Russian-based uh, reality put out there to protect a massive ocean rich in fishing and resources. And anyone who thinks they're going to Finland is actually going to another place because it doesn't exist. There are lots of issues dealing with science uh, that even with truths that everyone should be able to accept, of course, that's true. They're not even accepted. Uh, the next is that the Bible is filled with contradictions. Most of the accusations, even if you Google it and start to read through the list, most of these accusations come from people who don't understand the context of Scripture at all. And their ignorance of the context of Scripture leads them to make accusations that are very empty and are easily responded to. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, there is the account of creation. And then in chapter 2, it sums it up again with the focus on the creation of Adam and Eve and their existence in the image of God and the covenant of marriage. And so the, the chapters are meant to describe different things and make different points. But... Uh, People will say those two chapters contradict each other. They're, they're separate accounts of how the world was created. 
but the context of the chapters are very different in what is being communicated or differences between the Old and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. Differences that we know that aren't complicated, that aren't hidden, but some of those differences between Old and New Covenant, people will take and say, oh, that's, that's a contradiction of what the Bible says in the Old Testament and what the Bible says here. There's no contradiction. It's simply the fulfillment of one covenant and the establishment of another. Uh, people who are just looking at phrases and lines here and there and not interested in the context, well, what's the point being made here, can easily come up with long lists of supposed contradictions that are simply not contradictions. Uh, another large category in that would be multiple reports on the same event, such as in the Gospels, where you have different reports on the death of Jesus, or on particular miracles, or conversations, or in the Old Testament, where you have in Chronicles accounts of uh, the nation of Judah, and then you also do in Samuel and Kings. And anytime there are multiple accounts about a particular event the people that are making uh, that giving that description they're looking at it from a particular perspective what they saw and know or or the point that's trying to be made there and anytime there are different people speaking about the same event they said they're going to bring up different things and that's the same thing that's in the Gospels. Luke is writing to the Gentile audience. Matthew is writing to the Jewish audience. John, who is aware of the other Gospels, is dealing with issues very often that they don't deal with or points that they don't make. So it's simply the, the different perspectives that are describing the same events. Again, there's, there's not contradiction in that. Another uh, categories that the Bible has been translated so many times we cannot know what is originally said. And that is drastically overstated. Uh, again, it, it simply involves claims that are not true, that we have generations and generations and generations of copies so detached from the original that we cannot possibly no. Archaeological finds continue to prove that the copyists were faithful. And nothing that alters the theology of Scripture has been found. There is a, a statement made by Douglas Stewart addressing this. It's fair to say that the books of the Bible would largely read the same and leave the same impression with the reader even if we adopted virtually every possible alternative reading to those now serving as the basis for our current English translations. So he's saying if you took every variation of a word different here or word different there, and if you took all of those variations from all of the translations that we've used and put it all together, it would still say the same thing. The content, the purpose, the intent. What is the author saying here? It would be the same. Even, he said, if you gathered them all together and put them together in a pile. It doesn't change what scripture says. Uh, and biblical manuscripts are greater in number and closer to the original than, without exception, any ancient literature. And it's not even close. Daniel Wallace, who is an expert in textual criticism, 
says New Testament scholars have an embarrassment of riches compared to the classic Greek and Latin scholars, what they have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remains numbers no more than 20 copies. We have more than a thousand times, not a thousand copies, we have more than a thousand times more copies than the manuscript data for the New Testament than the average Greek Roman author. Not only this, the existing manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time it was originally written. For the New Testament, we are waiting mere decades for the surviving copies. So from the original, Paul dictating, Luke writing, the distance between that first parchment and the earliest manuscripts we have are a matter of a few decades, even a couple of decades, versus 500 years. If the veracity of the Bible is questioned, then literally no ancient writing can be accepted. But there are lots of ancient writings that are accepted as valid. What the author intended, this is what he wrote. They're accepted without any question because it fits every measurement used for acceptability and yet the scripture which is far superior in vast numbers of manuscripts and manuscripts that reach much closer to the original yet when it comes to scripture they change the rules they they move the yardsticks they don't use the same standard if they did we could not accept any ancient writings is true because the Bible has more manuscripts closer than any of them. There is real potential that when it comes to the New Testament, we may even have second generation manuscripts, meaning the original, the next generation, we may even have those that close. Uh, the question that the Bible is a violent book that is not worth reading, that it's not worth following. Uh, the Bible has a lot of violence in it because the Bible is an honest book. People consider it a violent book. It is because the Bible is describing the truth of this world and the people who live in it. And so the Bible doesn't hold any punches at all concerning the hearts of people. Even the hearts of those people who are considered good and the hearts of people who really have loved God and have served him. And yet we see the wretchedness in every human heart. The Bible deals with life as it really is. And in the case where God is accused of sponsoring violence, what God is doing is bringing justice where it is deserved in a way to cause all of us to see that justice will come against all sin. To say the Bible is violent is just to say this is an evil, wretched world filled with violence. And the Bible's making that clear. The next accusation that the Bible is written by primitive people and is no longer relevant. The person behind every word in scripture is God himself. And God is an unchanging person and he is our authority. And that's what God's word calls us to see. God speaks. 
There's nothing primitive about God or what he has to say. Uh, God has spoken to people from the beginning of creation. And God continued to speak to them in ways that were written down over the next couple thousand years. It's not primitive people writing something no longer applicable. It is God speaks. And the people that the Bible was originally written to, no matter how far back you go, they were like us. They were parents. They had jobs. They had pains, sickness. They faced death. They were betrayed. They had hopes. They had family fights. They had failures. They were people just like us. And the Bible is dealing with them in the issues that we face, with the values that we need. The fact that the Bible presents every generation with the same values is part of its strength. The argument that it's written to primitive people, it, it's just a way to cover over the fact that the Bible has standards that I don't like. And people don't want to stand under the authority of God. And so you have to declare that God didn't write it, that primitive people did. It comes down to who speaks, who has authority, is it God or not? And that the Bible is the same in its values is a blessing to us because we know that what we give to our children and our grandchildren will be just as secure for them as it was for us. God doesn't move the yardsticks. God doesn't change the rules. The standards aren't going to be different. And what we pass on, we pass on with complete confidence and trust. And as we look at the world, which seems to be out of control, to know we can give to these little ones something that if they will cling to it, it will stand firm no matter what the world looks like in their day. That is a wondrous gift what they are considering a criticism is actually one of the great strengths of scripture it's something we rejoice in and the last of these is the bible is mythology containing spiritual truths it has value but it wasn't meant to be taken literally the problem is that with that is biblical authors they clearly considered what they were giving us to be literal truth, events that happened. They wrote it as historically true and theologically true, not myth. Let me just walk through a few statements in scripture. And the point of it is to show that the men whom the Spirit is using to write Scripture, they don't think they're writing myth. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty consider concerning the things you've been taught. Luke did not consider what he wrote about the life of Christ to be mythology. Two chapters later, 
This is how he introduces the ministry of John the Baptist, which will lead to the ministry of Jesus. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachianus, and Licinius is tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Uh, what's Luke's point with all of that? Um, I'm giving you a context of exactly when these things take place. And he even, we might even say, goes overboard. He, every ruler anywhere in the region, this is who was around when these things happened. His, his point is the opposite of what is given as a critique. His point is there is no mythology here. First uh, John 1, the apostle says, We write what we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's speaking of the Old Testament there which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Paul says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. One more, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Know this first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The biblical authors are claiming they are writing the truth. The full truth and nothing but the truth. People can debate these different points, science, contradictions, primitive people, the number of translations, mythology. People can debate these points, but it's disingenuous and it's misinformed to say it's a slam dunk case that the Bible simply isn't true. That is an empty statement which is not based upon reason, science, history, or truth. Another category, uh, a little bit different than these, also very common concerning uh, why we, we can't claim the Bible as the word of God, is uh, to make the no one can know argument. No one can say they have the word of God. No one can know that. No one can claim that. And where they take that then is, if you want to believe it, that's fine, but it has no demand on anyone. It's completely voluntary. If you want to believe it, you can believe it. But there is no sacred writing that anyone can point to and say, that's the word of God. In fact, what they say is, no one can even declare that God has spoken. However, that 
is an unreasonable position because God is a person. And it is unreasonable to think that God doesn't communicate with those who created. That is not reasonable. It is unreasonable to think God doesn't care what we believe about him or how we represent him. We take it very seriously what people believe about us or how people represent us. You can actually take people to court if they misuse that. We get indignant if people have the wrong idea about us. And then those who would be indignant about how they're represented will immediately turn and act as if God doesn't care how he's represented. When in fact, what he has to say has importance. Most of what we say doesn't. God wants us to be clear about his convictions and character even more than we want to be clear about ours because there's much more at stake concerning God. It is reasonable that God has spoken. Indeed, it must be assumed. Communication is such a basic aspect of personhood. The question is not whether or not God has spoken. There is a question. Which writing is really from him? That's the question. Not whether or not God has spoken. That must be assumed. Which is the word of God? That's what everyone should be seeking for and wanting to know. That's the big question. The Bible just stands out among sacred books. Another category to look at is the fact that there are, in fact, strong proofs for the Bible that make it reasonable to accept the Bible and to take it seriously. Probably most prominent of those is fulfilled prophecy. Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of prophetic statements covering centuries. Here are just a few about Jesus. Just that category and just a few about him. That he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, descendant of David, called out of Egypt, called a Nazarene, would perform signs of healing, would speak in parables, come riding on a donkey, would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, would be a willing sacrifice, would bear our sins and suffer in our place, would be pierced that no bones in his body would be broken, and then we only need this, and he would be raised from the dead. That one by itself is enough. We'll be looking at that specific reality in a few weeks, the resurrection. In addition to the extensive numbers of prophetic statements, the miracles of Jesus. Consider the context of this. Jesus performed hundreds and most likely thousands of miracles. Many times it speaks of, and he healed everyone that was present. And we know vast crowds followed him. Hundreds and hundreds of miracles. And they are public. Witnessed by thousands and probably over the year, those three years, 
tens of thousands of people. The sample size is unparalleled. These were not hidden things in a village that then people were saying. These were public events before crowds, witnessed day after day. And many of those people were alive as the Gospels were being written to either uphold, I remember that I was there, or to refute it and say, I was there, none of that happened. The Gospels were written in the lifetimes of these witnesses that were by the thousands. The miracles of Jesus are an immense proof widely circulated and known. Even Jesus' worst enemies didn't question the fact that he performed miracles. There was no question by his enemies whether or not miracles took place. John eleven forty seven. The Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And then in Acts 4.16, speaking about Jesus' apostles, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The whole city knows. He says, we cannot deny it. These are Jesus' enemies. The miracles are just a fact that we have to try to get around. And we're not sure how to do that. Prophecy, miracles, another strong proof is that of archaeology. Over the centuries, hundreds of archaeological discoveries have only affirmed biblical accounts rather than over these centuries we're given more and more reason to think, oh, that wasn't true, or oh, that didn't exist. That's not the narrative. The archaeological finds keep showing that this town that the Bible speaks of, that people say no one ever heard of it, oh, it did exist. Or this king mentioned in scripture, and they say there's no proof he existed, oh, this find does show he existed. The archaeologist just keeps showing scripture is historically true. To the point that... Uh, a number of years ago, I don't know if they would still do it today, but the Smithsonian made this statement. Because they actually have gotten lots of requests from people about his biblical evidence. Is it really true? So they, they had a statement provided. Much of the Bible, in particular, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity. And in fact, more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents in archeological work. For the most part, historical events described took place and the people cited really existed. This is not to say that the names of all peoples and places mentioned can be identified today or that every event as reported in the historical books happened exactly as stated. So they're not willing to say the Bible is blanketly true. What they're saying is it's historical record that we use. And it's a better record than other cultures provide. So we have... We have seen that the arguments against Scripture is not this slam-dunk case which is provided, that is proclaimed and said by many. Uh, we have seen that it is reasonable to believe that God has spoken, 
Uh, we've seen some of the proofs for Scripture that are strong. Uh, but I'd like to wrap up with three points of focus. Now, there are some that may enjoy pursuing these different areas and mastering them enough so that you can articulate and understand and interact with them. And if you love to do that, that's, that's great. But there are three points of focus that I think are most helpful for regular conversation with people who have people who just question, they're not sure, who wonder about the Bible. For those who are antagonistically against it, there's not a lot you can do if they've already assumed that it's nonsense. Uh, three points to focus on. The first is the person of Jesus. Uh, he is the central person of the Bible. What does he say about it? And Jesus in general has a pretty good reputation, even in the world. So what does Jesus say about the Bible? He is the most amazing and attractive person who's ever lived. As people are introduced to him and what he said and what he did, it, it draws people in. Jesus is affirmed by other writers and abundant research has been done about him. Jesus, by reason of his resurrection, has more authority and more credibility than anyone who's ever lived. What does he say about the Bible? In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus upheld the word of God. Jesus upheld scripture. If you are to have respect for Jesus, you must have respect for scripture because he continually upheld and proclaimed what the Father had said. He lived to uphold it and to glorify it as well as himself. So connecting to the person of Jesus and had he upheld scripture, so if people are drawn to Jesus, then they must take the Bible Seriously, you can't have one without the other. You can't think well of Jesus, that he's a wonderful man who did wonderful things, who has good truths that we all should think about and emulate. And that's how the world in general deals with him. Well, you cannot have that view and not take the Bible seriously. They're, they're inseparable. The second area of focus is the authority and dependability of the Gospels. And again, as, as we're discussing with people, to focus on the Gospels, uh, first of all, it, it points us more directly to Jesus because we are uh, looking at the books that describe his life, give his words what he did. So it is connecting people to the person of Jesus who then is upholding scripture. He is the linchpin of the Bible because all the Old Testament is pointing to him. The New Testament is flowing from him so the Gospels introduce him to us. And the Gospels that we have and the manuscripts that we have as I've already mentioned are so close in time to the original documents that from a historical archaeological perspective it's viewed as virtually no time at all. What we have and how it matches uh, is close and 
and shows the veracity of the Gospels in a way that's much easier than older books, even though we have manuscripts for them, but nothing like the Gospels themselves. And then the epistles do the same, but the Gospels will capture the hearts of people and the story of it. So drawing people in to see the power of Scripture and the beauty and the truth of it, pointing them to the person of Jesus, and then how we can show that we know these things really happen, that these, this is, these are the accounts of the people there. We can know that. The third point. And uh, I think this may be, in some sense, the strongest of all, and I hope the most encouraging of all, uh, and helpful for all of us to keep in mind. And that is the self-attesting glory of the Bible. The Bible speaks for itself. Because the Bible is God-breathed. The Spirit of God, he gave it, and he's here, and he speaks. The Bible is simply the most powerful, supernatural book that exists. There's nothing like it. Like the old adage, how do you protect a lion? You open the cage. How do you prove scripture? You open it. John Piper, in his book, A Peculiar Glory, which he deals with this point at length, makes this comment. There are strong, compelling, scholarly, historical arguments for the authenticity of the biblical writings. But most people in the world, many of them preliterate, have little access to those arguments. So what he's saying... Things that I pointed to in archaeology and uh, critical review and uh, scientific evidence. Uh, you go most places in the world, even though there are arguments based on those things, they can't get their hands on any of that. And even if you gave it to them, many parts of the world, they couldn't even read it. So his point is, the Bible is not held up because people can get a hold of or you can articulate those arguments. People meet the gospel in some limited portion of God's word or they meet it in the oral transmission of the biblical message and all of us, including those people, and come to a well-grounded confidence in the truth of the gospel. And as the knowledge of scripture grows, that same confidence can extend to all of the Bible. For the gospel has in it a self-authenticating light and glory that makes such well-grounded belief possible. That even someone who doesn't know how to read and knows nothing of science or translations or proofs, if the Bible is read to them, it has a glory that will declare itself. So much that they will have as much confidence that the Bible is true as someone who has access and a brain to dig into all of the technical arguments. The Bible primarily rests on its own glory. Just as the Bible says that creation declares the glory of God, so does the Bible itself. It expresses the glory of God. 
the Bible is God-breathed. It is the purest written communication that exists. It is Holy Spirit-inspired and continues to affirm. He continues to affirm and speak through it. There's nothing like the Bible. It transcends every generation, every place and culture. There's nothing like that. It doesn't matter where you go in the world or what the culture is like or the age of the people. The Bible, when it's opened and read, changes hearts and meets every culture. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, every culture reads it and says, here is the light of God. So we invite people to read the Bible. Such is its glory that any open-hearted reader, they will be affected. Some will actually close it and put away because it'll frighten them. Because they'll know it's true. And they don't, they don't want to hear it. But it has power. Yes, the Bible requires faith, but it's not blind faith. It is reasoned faith upon which we confidently stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would encourage your people about your word because it is wondrous. Give us fresh joy in its beauty in the glory of it, that as we read it day by day, it would be joy to us, true food for the soul, transforming our hearts, empowering us to live in ways so that our lives give glory to God and shine with it, as was true of our Lord Jesus. Bless your people as they go forth. In Jesus' name, amen.